coming up on the Mission Readiness Podcast. The number one predictor of, of military service is growing up in, an, in a military household. And if those kids grow up and are at risk of food insecurity, they're at much greater risk of diabetes, obesity, and other diet-related health conditions that can make them unfit to serve later in life. Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Rich Gross and Mission Readiness National Director Ben Goodman. Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm your host, Rich Gross. With me, as always, is the National Director of Mission Readiness, Ben Goodman. Ben, how are you today? I'm great, General Gross. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, Exciting podcast today. We have two guests. We do. So we're going to hear a great conversation that you and I both had with Josh Protus from an interesting organization called Mazone. It's a Jewish response to hunger. And with Passover starting this weekend, it's a timely, interesting conversation that our listeners will find interesting no matter their background. But first, we're joined by someone from the Mission Readiness team. Yeah, that's right. We were uh, fortunate enough to be able to get our vice president for policy and strategic communications for Council for a Strong America, our umbrella organization, Jenny Wing Harper. Jenny is an expert on a lot of things, but one of the important things we wanted to ask her about is the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, the COVID relief bill that just got added. Jenny, thanks so much for being on the podcast again. Thanks for having me. It's always great to see you, sir. No, it's good. And I appreciate you doing this. You know, as I mentioned, we Congress has just passed. And of course, the president signed the COVID relief bill. Could you provide us with a brief background on what's in the legislation and what the final package looked like overall? Sure. So the final package was a $1.9 trillion uh package that passed through reconciliation. And so this included a whole host of different priorities, both kind of directly in response to COVID relief, but also in response to the economic um, you know, challenges that, they, that, that we face. And so this involved everything from you know, vaccine distribution, testing, um, support to help schools open back up, um, a lot of benefits in terms of those $1,400 stimulus checks that a lot of people are receiving. Um, unemployment insurance was extended, direct relief to state and local governments. Um, so there was there was a lot in there. It was it was a historic bill. Now it it sounds like a lot of help for a lot of people who definitely need it coming out of this pandemic. Let's talk about some of the specifics that, uh, especially close to the hearts of those mm-hmm. of us in mission readiness. What provisions are there in the bill that will impact federal nutrition and early childhood education and care programs? There's a lot in there for those. So, um, you know, on the nutrition side of things, it increased funding for WIC, which is a supplemental nutrition program that supports women and children up to five years of age. So it increased the payments that beneficiaries will receive and also provided funding to help modernize and support participation in the program. It also strengthened and extended the pandemic EBT or PEBT program. And that was a program that started because of the pandemic. And it's a program that provides temporary nutrition benefits to eligible children to help ensure they have access to food, particularly when schools are closed. Um, And then it also increased the overall benefits for SNAP by 15% through the remainder of this current fiscal year. 
So those are some of the main pieces on the nutrition side of things. On the early childhood side, specifically around childcare, which is an issue that you know, we've been working on a lot given the direct impact the pandemic has had on our child care system. Um, it provided $15 billion for the child care development block grant. And that's funding that goes directly to states and states have some flexibility in how they can use that. Um, certainly that goes to provide direct subsidies to parents so they can um, afford to put their their ch children in child care. Um, it also extends that to essential workers as well. And it allows states to improve the quality of the programs. Um, it also provides $24 billion for a stabilization fund, which is a new program. And these are direct payments to uh, providers. And so we know that providers had to shut down for, you know, some like not all providers, but a lot of providers had to shut down. Um, certainly they've had to deal with reduced enrollments either because of um, class size requirements that they have to have, you know, fewer, fewer kids in a classroom, but also just because there's a lot of different situations going on for families right now. And of course the increased cost of cleaning. And so, you know, childcare is a sector, childcare businesses have really always operated on pretty thin margins. And so the, the strains that the pandemic put, put upon our childcare providers were immense. And so this stabilization funding will provide direct relief and really help ensure that we have, um, you know, childcare there. So parents have somewhere to safely send their kids, you know, as we hopefully all begin to, to go back to work. Um, it also provided some tax benefits. So the bill provided an expansion of the child and dependent care tax credit. So this, for the first time, will make that tax credit refundable. And it will also increase the eligible expenses up to $8,000 for one child and $16,000 for two or more dependents. The other piece that it extended that is really kind of monumental within the legislation is the child tax credit. And so this also makes it fully refundable and it increases the credit to $3,000 for kids six and older and $3,600 for kids under six. And the other thing that's really different about the way they did this is that it allows for parents to start receiving advanced payments of those credits starting this July 1st. Parents can opt out of that, but they can start to receive monthly checks out from this credit. And that's something that I think will really, you know, change the change the way that parents who, you know, have kids can can access that funding. And a lot of the reports have said that that particular change in that credit will cut child poverty in half. So a lot of assistance, a lot of aid in that package. You mentioned the states, and of course, that's where a lot of these programs are implemented and executed at the state, local, and, and city, county level. Mm -hmm. What are the next steps for those states that have received federal money from the relief package? They've got a lot of work to do. Um, it, it, it depends program by program, um, but it's a lot of money. I mean, this is a historic amount of money. And while there's certainly great need, there's a lot of challenge, I think, for the states to really be able to determine how they're going to spend the money, get their plans together for the federal government to get that money out um, and to start to spend that money. And so um, there's a lot of work ahead in terms of the decisions that they have to make um, on how they want to allocate specific resources. There's a lot of flexibility within a number of these programs. So states can, can make different determinations. And the emergency nature of the funding also impacts how states might think about how they want to spend that money. You know, some of this is, you know, again, to directly relate to the emergency we're in, but some of it is around programs that already exist. And so do they want to expand access to programs that might only be temporary? Those are some of the questions that I think states are going to and, and localities are going to have to think about. So looking ahead, do you think Congress will consider additional COVID-19 relief legislation in the future? 
I think it's possible. My sense would be that it would be more targeted. Um, this was a big, big bill. Um, and a lot of the funding is for, um, can be spent over the next couple of years. And so some of the tax credits cut out in the next year. Um, I don't know that those would be extended on a pandemic relief. They might be done in some other mechanism. Um, but I think that, you know, I guess we'll have to see where we are as a country and, and what resources might be needed to continue to combat the pandemic. But um, this was not certainly not part of a down payment approach. This, this was the big payment. And last question, Jenny, what role do you think mission readiness members can have to support nutrition and early childhood programs in the coming month? I think there's a lot of, again, a lot of work to be done um, on the implementation side of this funding. I think we can help support um, state legislatures and governors as they're thinking about how they want to spend the money. I think at the federal level, we can help continue to um, you know, educate and inform about the need for this, these programs. Um, we're excited to see that the United States Senate Agriculture Committee is starting hearings on the child nutrition reauthorization. And this is the legislation that governs child nutrition programs, school meal programs, and it hasn't been reauthorized since 2010, the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, which we of course did a lot of work on that bill. And so we're excited to see that moving forward. Um, and I think in general, there's a lot coming out of this bill where like the changes to the child tax credit or the changes to the child independent care tax credit or the increased funding for CCDBG that that ends in a year or that ends in two years. And so we have to think about what look, what does it look like after that? And what do we want it to look like after that? And so there's a lot of opportunity to really begin to, to build towards what's next and to also think about how we take some of the lessons we learned from the pandemic, particularly around a lot of the nutrition programs. Um, schools had to pivot or the, you know, the meals programs really had to pivot and think about how they package and deliver those food and how they're able to access different families and provide that food. And so I think we can take a lot of those flexibilities and modernizations and try to apply that to those programs moving forward where it makes sense. A lot of great work done, but a lot of a lot of hard work up ahead in the future. Jenny, thanks so much for coming on the podcast on such short notice to explain this new bill to, to all our members. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Well, General Gross, now we'll head right into a great conversation with Josh Protus from Mazone. A lot of great work that Mazone is doing to address hunger in the veteran and military population. And I know our listeners are going to find it interesting. No, I think it'll be a great conversation. Looking forward to talking to him. Our guest today on the Mission Readiness Podcast is Josh Protus, who's the Vice President of Public Policy for Mazon, a Jewish response to hunger. It's an organization that's a national advocacy group focusing on ending hunger among all faiths and all backgrounds in the United States. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Rich. Glad to be here. Uh, we're glad to have you. Your organization, I find fascinating. Would you tell us a little bit about Mazon's founding, its mission, and its evolution? Sure, happy to. Mazone was founded back in 1985 during a time when many social safety net programs were in jeopardy. Uh, there was some cutting of budgets and programs like SNAP uh, were seeing a lack of political support. And the person who had the idea for Mazone uh, was a gentleman by the name of Label Fine, who was 
uh, really a giant in the Jewish social justice world. And he was attending a bat mitzvah celebration in Southern California. And he was standing outside of the congregation when the catering trucks were pulling up. And the rabbi, uh, Rabbi Harold Schulweis, who was also a giant in Jewish social justice uh, world, was standing there and, and Label was sort of horrified by seeing how many catering trucks were coming up for this very lavish celebration. At the same time, the people just down the street were going hungry. And Label was outraged uh, at that juxtaposition. And Rabbi Shulweis turned to him and said, so what are you going to do about it? And Label went home and thought about it and came up with the idea of Mazon really as a fulfillment of the biblical commandment about uh, setting, the sword, setting aside the corners of our fields. Um, in biblical tradition, we were commanded to set aside the corners of our fields for the poor, the widow, the orphan. Of course, we're not all farmers now, so we don't all have fields to be able to do that. But there's a recognition that programs like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as Food Stamps, the National School Lunch Program, Meals on Wheels, these programs fulfill that collective responsibility to take care of the most vulnerable among us. And Mazon is really centered on the idea that we'll never food bank our way to an end of hunger, that we have to have robust and effective programs to fully help those in need, get people back on their feet and take care of those who are struggling. Now, you know, as a Jewish person, I love that Mazon is rooted in the Jewish values of pursuing justice, uh, respecting the inherent dignity of every person. And I love that concept of, of talking about the corners of the, of the fields here. You know, when, when, People throughout the pandemic have turned on the television. They've seen photos of really effective food banks, and they know the role that charity, um, you know, has played throughout this pandemic, and uh, and and quite frankly, before in in trying to combat hunger. Why did Mazone early on decide that advocacy was such an important um, place to to channel its efforts? So Mazone recognizes that the emergency food system has an important role, but it's really for emergency purposes and was never set up to have the capacity to fully address the issue of hunger in this country. And we know that only the federal government has the scope, the capacity, the resources to be able to do that. So that advocacy voice is so critically important. And I guess a way to think about it is changing the focus from a charitable response to a justice-centered response. We know that of all of the food assistance in this country, less than 10% actually comes from all of the food banks, the churches, mosques, synagogues, from the charitable sector. That more than 90% comes from government programs, first and foremost, the SNAP program. So if we focus too much on the charitable response, we risk losing support for the programs that really are the foundation of our response to hunger. And we need to have the government centrally in this campaign, in this effort to, to end hunger in the U.S. Well, Josh, I know that uh, both Mazone and Mission Readiness are organizations focused on the entire U.S. population of, of children in need, but, but also sometimes focusing on specific populations. I saw a report recently on CBS News about service members, active duty service members, and it stated that 40% of active duty service members face food insecurity. Obviously, that's a population that's important to our members at Mission Readiness, but I'm interested to hear why your organization chose to prioritize military families and veterans. 
So Mazon started hearing from a number of our partner organizations, food banks, food pantries, and multi-service agencies on the ground in communities about an uptick in the number of military families that were coming for emergency assistance. And, and this is going back nearly a decade. So we started to look into what was going on and, and recognize that there are actually a couple of different issues at play. There is a challenge for currently serving military families um, that is unique from veterans, but that many of these agencies, when they talk about military families, they're conflating all of those. So they're not necessarily differentiating between active duty, guard, reserve, and veteran. And we know that there are some unique challenges and needs for each of those populations. What we discovered, shockingly, for currently serving military families is that there's actually a barrier that makes it more difficult for them to qualify for assistance that they really need from the SNAP program, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, having to do with the way that their basic allowance for housing is treated as income for SNAP purposes, but it's not treated as income for federal income tax or most federal assistance programs. So Mazon really stepped in to lead the charge nationally on that, in part because we saw that nobody else in the anti-hunger community was addressing this at all. It was really an overlooked issue both by, uh, by the Pentagon, by Congress, as well as by the anti-hunger community. Have you found there's a stigma with active duty service members to seek that kind of assistance, whether it's from nonprofit organizations such as yourself or from federal and state assistance programs? There's a huge stigma uh, among the military population. I think there's this sense in military culture that you kind of buck up and, and you, you power through and, and also this sense that the military takes care of its own. Um, so there's been a real reluctance to even ask for help for families that are struggling, in part because there's a concern that uh, if there's a perception that you're having trouble managing your finances, that that negatively reflects on you, and that potentially it could jeopardize your career status, your security clearance, your promotability. Um, in fact, the Department of Defense used to administer a program called the Family Subsistence Supplemental Allowance, FSSA. It's actually been discontinued uh, back in 2016. But that program was designed to try and lessen the military uh, participation in the food stamp program. And in order to apply for that program, a service member would have to go through his or her uh, base chain of command. And very few people were willing to do that because of that stigma, that shame, and also just the concern about career status. No, I could I could definitely see that, and I think I think most of our members, if not all of them, could relate to that that stigma. Have you also seen that the pandemic has ex exacerbated this problem during uh, during this time of pandemic? Has it created more problems with military families? A absolutely, the pandemic has exacerbated challenges for all Americans. Um, we've seen the food insecurity rates spiking uh, for the American public in general, and that also translates for military families. And part of the challenge for military families is an exceptionally high rate of spousal unemployment. So even before the pandemic, that was hovering around 22 to 24 um, percent. We have seen data about that rate even higher now, up to about a third of military spouses that want to work um, that are unable to. Um, and that doesn't even take into account underemployment or you know, employment that is below the education and training level. So that's part of the unique challenge for these military families. And 
those who are impacted by the food insecurity issue are primarily junior enlisted personnel who have larger households. So they're E1s to E4s who have multiple dependents. And of course, for your listeners, I, I think where there's a lot of concern are about the children in those families who we know are more likely to go into military service themselves, that the number one predictor of, of military service is growing up in, an, in a military household. And if those kids grow up and are at risk of food insecurity, they're at much greater risk of diabetes, obesity, and other diet-related health conditions that can make them unfit to serve later in life. So trying to address food insecurity for those military households at a particular time in need when they're early in their military career is not only an issue of mission readiness for the service member, but it's an issue of retention to keep good talent in our armed forces, and then also for recruitment down the road. Yeah, you know, that's absolutely right. I, I was reading recently that the New York Times reported that 79% of Army recruits uh, reported having a family member that served. And for 30% of those those recruits, it was a parent that had served. Um, so I think we're in clear alignment here. So let's talk more about this SNAP and basic how, housing allowance issue. Um, for our listeners who may not be kind of familiar with um, the calculations and SNAP eligibility. Can we dig a little deeper into that issue? Can you can you give us kind of a, a basic explanation for, for folks to understand? Sure. So uh, for SNAP eligibility, there are a couple of different criteria um, that need to be met. And SNAP, as a reminder, is a federal program, but it's administered by states. And there's some variation in, in state calculations about eligibility guidelines. But there's essentially a, a gross income test and asset tests as well. And for the currently serving military families that, that we're talking about, um, what becomes difficult is when you look at the base rate of pay and then you add on top of that the basic allowance for housing, particularly for those who live in high cost of living areas, that puts their total household income oftentimes above the SNAP eligibility guidelines. And so even though you may have a household that has a low base pay and is struggling to meet their basic needs, they're outside of eligibility for SNAP because that BAH gets treated as income. And just for comparison's sake, uh, for service members who live on base, their housing is treated as an in-kind benefit and is not treated as income. So currently we have somewhere around 10,000 military households that participate in the SNAP program. And my guess is that the majority of those probably live on base where that the value of that housing is not counted against them and it makes it easier for them to qualify. Also, for comparison's sake, if you look at civilian households who receive federal housing assistance, whether it's Section 8 housing vouchers or, or other federal housing subsidies, the value of that housing assistance is not treated as income. So we're actually treating military families who live off base or in privatized housing and get a BAH worse off than we're treating others for uh, the purposes of SNAP eligibility. Wow, that's that's astounding. Uh, what... How, what does Mizunzi is the best way to to fix this issue? Is it is it just a a technical fix somewhere, or is it a, a, a does it require kind of a broader, more sweeping approach? So it's remarkable. I, I've been at Mazone a little over eight years, and the whole time I've been at Mazone, I've been working really intensively on this issue. And it should be a really easy fix. There's bipartisan support for this. It's a really common sense issue that. It staggers the mind that we even have military families that struggle with food insecurity, and 
that we can't fix that is, is amazing. And yet it's been very stubborn to get it resolved. We've tried to request administrative fixes for this, both in the Obama administration and in the Trump administration. Um, that would be uh, an administrative change through the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which oversees the SNAP program. We've been unsuccessful in that. We've looked at the authorization of the SNAP program as part of the Farm Bill. Uh, the last Farm Bill was completed in 2018. And unfortunately, a fix for this issue, uh, what we were seeking was to exclude the BAH as counted income, did not make it into the final bill. Um, and then we've gone back to the drawing board uh, with a creative, different approach to this in looking at the National Defense Authorization Act. And what we've proposed is a military family basic needs allowance that essentially would be extra cash to service member households that are at or below 130% of the federal poverty level. So the way we have structured this is we would call upon the Department of Defense to automatically notify service members if they're potentially eligible. They would have to uh, provide documentation if there's added uh, spousal income or household income that might change their eligibility status. But if not, they could get this extra cash in hand that would put them just above 130% of the federal poverty level as a way to help meet their basic needs. And it's really targeted and temporary because we know as service members promote up pretty quickly through those junior enlisted ranks, they'll promote outside of eligibility as their, their pay increases too. And as you've talked, you mentioned you've seen bipartisan support for, for at least the fix. Um, what are you finding as you talk with members of Congress and others about creation of, of, of this new, uh, new benefit? So I think part of the challenge in this has been some Department of Defense reluctance to acknowledge that there's a problem. Um, you know, and I think it's partly because it's embarrassing to talk about military families that are struggling to put food on the table. Uh, back in the late 1990s, there were media stories about military families on food stamps. And the Pentagon and Congress hated the optics of that. John McCain in 2000 uh, on the presidential campaign trail lamented what he called the food stamp army and said that if even one service member was participating on food stamps, that that was a national shame. The shame isn't that we have families that are, are helped by food stamps. The, the bigger shame is that we have families that need that help from food stamps and are prevented from qualifying for it and have to turn in desperation and embarrassment to food pantries that are on or near almost every military base in this country. Um, the truth is that the pay for service members is more calibrated towards single individuals than towards families. And we have many more families coming to military service now. And with the high rates of spousal unemployment, if it's just a single base pay that we're talking about, it can be tough to make ends meet. No, uh, just just astounding. And um, I know this is something our members are going to be really um, interested in, in learning more and following um, what, what, where Mazone takes us. What opportunities do you see kind of on the, on the horizon right now, um, at least as we go into this legislative year and in, in trying to move the ball forward? And, and, and how far, uh, you know, as you said, Mazone's been working on this and really leading the charge for years now. Do you feel like there's momentum going into this, this Congress? There's definitely momentum uh, going into this Congress. With a change in Congress and, and a new administration, we're hopeful that there'll be a different perception about this issue. So over the past two years, we've been successful in getting the military family basic needs allowance provision included in the House version of the National Defense Authorization Act. 
Unfortunately, in, in part because of some DOD opposition, that provision didn't make it into the Senate version of the bill and got stripped out in the conference process. Um, we have champions in Congress that are gearing up again for the fiscal year 2022 NDAA bill, and we will make the push again to get this included. We know that there's some new data coming out that will really help to validate not only the extent of this issue, but also what the costs are for our military and for our country that we hope will change the, the perception. And I'm also encouraged that the First Lady's Office has really prioritized military family issues um, by reinstituting the Joining Forces Initiative. And, and we know that that there's a concern about taking care of, of those who are serving our country. So we're, we're hopeful that we can get broad support for this once again. Um, we have our champions on the Hill who are, are getting ready to, to make the push as part of the NDAA process. Um, but we know it's not going to be easy, and, and we certainly welcome support from from listeners, from mission readiness, from uh, from those with whom you work. Um, we really need a lot of voices to to help to prioritize this because the issue for so long has been overlooked and and is not well understood. And I think the more that people recognize that this problem is out there and that there's a reasonable common sense fix to it, um, they can get behind that. No, and I think, Josh, I, I think our listeners are the kind of people that would be interested in it, that would understand it because of their military backgrounds and, and would be willing to weigh in as well. So we will continue to bring that issue up with, with, with mission readiness members. Well, Josh, you've talked a lot about active duty families and some of the uh, initiatives there. How about veteran families? Because I, as I understand it, the post 9-11 veteran population, they're the ones with kids and there's some concern there as well. There is, and thanks for raising that. There has been a growing recognition about food insecurity uh, in the veteran population. And as you mentioned, the post 9-11 veteran population in particular. Uh, Study a few years back by researchers at the University of Minnesota showed rates of food insecurity and very low food security for post 9-11 veterans, about twice that of the general population. In addition to that, recent research has shown that veterans who are potentially eligible for SNAP are only participating in the program at a a rate of about 30%, meaning that more than two-thirds of veterans who are entitled to receive help from SNAP are not getting that help. So they're leaving those benefits on the table. So there's a lot more that we can do as a country. Mazon's been really proud to lead the effort uh, engaging the VA. Um, the VA system has started an ensuring veteran food security work group over the past few years. They actually started the process of screening veterans for food insecurity. So part of the challenge is if you're not asking the question and you don't try to see who, who may be struggling, then you, you don't know the answer and you can't respond adequately. So it's great that the screenings are happening. What we would love to see is more outreach that's ha- uh, that happens both at VA centers as well as to reach veterans outside of the VA system to make sure that if they need that help, particularly those with young kids, that they're getting connected to programs like SNAP and WIC and school meals programs. I want to turn to Native Americans. I know that's another place Mazone is working to address hunger. And of course, America's Native population has the highest per capita record of service in the military. Not a lot of folks necessarily know that, including the highest concentration of women service members, uh, more than any other group. Can you 
speak to the need to address hunger in Indian country and more broadly to the role that addressing hunger plays in equity and opportunity? Sure. So as you rightfully pointed out, Rich, um, Native Americans serve in the armed forces at the highest rate of any demographic group in this country. And also food insecurity rates are the highest in Indian country. Um, there's a lot of historical reasons for that. I mean, going back to the treaty agreements uh, between tribal nations and the United States government, not all of which have been adequately fulfilled or properly fulfilled. And um, you know, there's a, a, a lot to say about that. But part of those treaty agreements had to do with land, with, with ownership and, and usage of land and um, and access to natural resources and access to being able to provide for their own people. Um, there's been a lot of loss of traditional foodways and, um, and traditional lands that have made self-sustenance more difficult. And there's been a growing interest and uh, movement around food sovereignty in Indian country that Mazon has been really proud to help in supporting. We work with fantastic groups like the uh, Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative and the uh, Native Farm Bill Coalition and Intertribal Agriculture Coalition that have really pushed for greater tribal administration of federal uh, nutrition assistance programs, as well as greater food sovereignty to make sure that traditional foods are incorporated into people's diets and, and also can be part of federal purchasing programs. Now, Josh, I know that uh, Mazone, like Mission Readiness, has been active at the state level over the years. And I've been pleased to hear that Mazone has been working on initiatives like expanding access to school breakfast and combating this concept known as lunch shaming that I know some of our listeners have, have read about in the news uh, over the last few years. Can you talk a little bit about Mazone's work um, in the states, some of the partners you work with, and what opportunities you see beyond Washington, D.C. in the years ahead? Sure. So... Ben, as, as you noted, there's been really important work happening at the state level, in part because there's been so much dysfunction at the, at the federal level um, with not a lot of federal legislation that is proactive um, that, that's been passed. So we've really needed to look at the state level to affect some positive change. And as you mentioned, the lunch shaming issue, which is just a horrible issue is one that we took on many years ago, actually with the first uh, anti-lunch shaming legislation in the country that happened in Minnesota, uh, working with some of our synagogue partners and grantee partners in the state, uh, worked with state legislators to, uh, to come up with legislation to really ban that practice. And what was concerning is you know, the children who were struggling, you know, who were participating in the free or reduced um, school meal program and really in the reduced price meal category and, and their households were in arrears and, and owed money, those kids were put in the middle and were oftentimes shamed, sometimes wearing stickers um, put on their chest, being sent home saying that they owed money, sometimes having their hands stamped um, showing that they owed money, sometimes having their lunches dumped into the trash can in front of them and their classmates. And that kind of shaming doesn't help anybody. Um, it, it really doesn't get to the root of the problem that um, that we have households that are struggling. They're not trying to, to get around what they owe, but they may just be um, facing difficulties. And we as a society need to step up to make sure that, that kids aren't 
um, put on the front lines of, of those kind of embarrassing situations. And most importantly, they get the meals that they so badly need in order to reach their full potential in life. So at the state level, we've seen more effort around the, this lunch shaming, uh, anti-lunch shaming legislation. Um, and then also, I think, interesting innovations uh, to try and streamline application process uh, processes for different programs and making sure that we're removing barriers uh, to access for, for those who need help. I, I just have to say that lunch shaming makes me so angry that, and I saw it when I was a kid and it's been a long time, a long time since I've been in middle school, but I remember it and my heart just broke for those kids who, you know, for whatever reason were singled out or made to look different because of something that was not their fault. And, uh, I, you know, I'm I'm so glad you all are working on that. I know our members care about it. I know mission readiness cares about it. So it's, it's something you're absolutely right. We've, we've, we've got to change that in America. There's no place for it. We're, we're better than that as a country. There, there's absolutely. no reason that should exist. Absolutely. Um, let me shift to two questions. We kind of end every podcast with for our guests. The first one we started during the pandemic what is one habit or behavior you've developed during the pandemic, either personal or professional, that you intend to keep doing once the pandemic is over? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've certainly been reading a lot more since the pandemic has started, but I think the thing that comes to mind, uh, before the pandemic, I, I played Ultimate Frisbee, and I've taken a break from that uh, because of the the close physical contact with others. And also I'm dealing with a heart issue. So I've had to take a break, but in, in the course of the pandemic, I've started playing Frisbee golf, um, with a couple of, of my ultimate buddies. So I never played disc golf before. Um, and I was reluctant to do it at first because I don't know, ultimate players sort of look down on disc golf, but I've really enjoyed it. And, um, it, it was hard because you throw in a totally different way. Um, but I will continue to do that as well. And hopefully we'll be able to get back playing ultimate soon. That's cool. Uh, you mentioned reading, which a lot of our guests have said they've picked up their, their learning and their personal reading. And that's our last question that we always ask our guests. What books are you reading lately? What books would you recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I've been reading a lot lately and a strange mix of fiction and nonfiction. So uh, right now, I am reading *The Lost* uh, by Daniel Mendelson, uh, which is partly a family memoir about uh, the author's uh, kind of interesting and mysterious Holocaust history uh, for his family members. Uh, also, really enjoyed recently Robert Caro's book *Working*, um, which is a reflection about his historical research. He um, is finishing a an extended series about Lyndon Johnson and um, his rise in exercise of power. Uh, I read the young adult book *Stamped* uh, by Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds, uh, which is an adaptation of *Stamped* from the beginning. Um, really, a view about anti-racism and, and racism in this country, which was incredibly powerful and really jarring. Um, and then I read President Obama's uh, memoir, A Promised Land, which I found very interesting as well. Well, Josh, thanks so much uh, for being on the podcast today. Great list of books that I think we're going to point our listeners to. If folks want more information about Mazone's work, where do they go? 
Thank you so much, Rich and, and Ben. And thanks for everything that Mission Readiness does. We're glad to work alongside of you. Um, there's so much that we need to get done and uh, so much we can do together. And for more information, people can go to Mazon's website, which is mazon.org, M-A-Z-O-N.org, uh, or also endmilitaryhunger.org, where we have a special site for our campaign to address military hunger issues. Ben, that was a great conversation. I think a lot of our listeners are going to be surprised by the hunger issues and the food insecurity issues that a lot of military families are facing. I think so too, sir. And, um, you know, while at Mission Readiness, we're focused on all kids and ensuring that kids in the full population of young people in the United States, inclusive of those kids in military families, we want them all to succeed. You know, as Josh pointed out in the conversation, the fact that, um, you know, a parent serving or a family member serving is such a predictor of whether or not a young person goes on to serve, uh, we really need to do something to address the issue that seems to be so unique to this community. So I'm glad that a group like Mazone is out there leading the charge on this and looking forward to keeping tabs on on this fight uh, as it unfolds. No, I couldn't agree more. Well, again, to all our listeners, thanks again for being a part of the Mission Readiness Podcast. Today's show was written and produced by Megan Adamczewski, Abby Ware, and John Connolly. For more about Mission Readiness, Council for a Strong America, or to find an archive of every episode of the Mission Readiness Podcast, visit strongnation.org. And a reminder, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a positive review, and tell your friends about the program. The program's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, on behalf of Ben Goodman and the whole team at Mission Readiness, thank you for supporting our work to strengthen national security by ensuring kids stay in school, in shape, and out of trouble. <laughs>